Does drug decriminalization work? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Neil Boyd. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Neil Boyd. Neil is Professor Emeritus at Simon Fraser University. His focuses include critical analysis of Canadian criminal law, homicide, Canadian narcotics legislation, the legal control pornography, workplace violence, the biology of male and female violence, and, of course, drug law and decriminalization. Neil, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. It's great to have you on, Neil. And we base each episode on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today in speaking with you is, does drug decriminalization work? And I, and I think really the best way to get into that and explore that theme is to start with some concepts and basics first and then get into some facts and real, words, real world scenarios and so on, especially as it relates to British Columbia up here in Canada. So let's jump right into it. Sometimes, at least I find, there's confusion around what legalizes and what decriminalizes can you elaborate on what both of those are first to set the stage? Well, we've legalized, for example, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and cannabis. And so these are all mind-active drugs that are regulated, that are available typically to adults. Um, and the uh, extent to which they're regulated is said at least to depend on the public health risks uh, that are wrapped up in those substances. Um, so, so that's, a, I guess, a, a picture of what legalization looks like. So, like, I guess the legalization, it, it's, for example, not legal to possess and produce. Of course, it might be regulated, like you might need a license to do something, but overall, it's like fair game, basically. There's nothing against well, the law. Well, it is legal. Code. I mean, no, when, when you look at those substances, cannabis, uh, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, they're all legal to possess. Um, in some instances, you have to be a certain age to possess, but uh, but there's no illegality in terms of possession. Uh, distribution is regulated in different ways with respect to all of those drugs. And and what's the difference, if any, between legalize and if someone says to de- decriminalize something? What's decriminalization? Well, typically, decriminalization only refers to the instance of possession. That is, if we decriminalize, um, you're, rarely are people talking about decriminalizing distribution. They mostly, when they, when they reference decriminalization, are talking about not imposing criminal penalties for possession of the illicit drug um, and maintaining penalties uh, with respect to distribution offenses. So decriminalization is is typically very different from from legalization. So, so am I understanding it correctly? Where in decriminalized, like certain things would not be criminal. So, for example, possession, but overall, the criminal code, for instance, of Canada still treats it as an illegal substance per se, just not to possess it. For example, well, the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act is basically the the statute. It's a it's criminal law, but it's the statute that regulates or prohibits certain kinds of drugs and the possession and distribution of those drugs. Um, and, and that's quite different from the Cannabis Act, which essentially I mean, creates offenses of possession of illicit cannabis, but basically regulates adult access to cannabis. Right. 
And it, are there specific pros and cons of whether that we, you know, a province or a jurisdiction tries to go the decriminalization route versus the legalization route? Is it really just like, you know, public attitudes and what's possible at the time politically feasible that dictates this? Or do you actually think there's, you know, legitimate things to be said about each side? Of course, like, you know, one of the more standard, straightforward um, civil libertarian argument is always legalize everything. If nobody's hurting someone else and so on and so forth, they can do what they want with their own body. But but even putting that aside for a second, do, do, are there legitimate things to be said about both decriminalization and legalization, depending on the situation? Well, the argument in British Columbia has been that if we decriminalize possession, uh, the people who are using um, opiates and who are at risk from the toxic drug supply will be less concerned about apprehension by the police and will put themselves in situations that make it less likely uh, that, that they will um, die from overdoses. Now, the reality in, in British Columbia, at least, is that uh, it's rarely been the case that uh, uh, the, the police prosecute small amounts of possession. Uh, but, but you know, th- this is nonetheless what's happened is a change. And, and will it have a big impact on the extent of overdose deaths? I, I don't think so, because, you know, the question of where people get these toxic illicit drugs um, is not addressed by decriminalization. That's only addressed by the creation of a safer supply or by a regulated market. And so, so would your preference or what you think would be the best would be legalization, for instance, as the argument goes, if there is a market and, uh, you know, for instance, we treat cert- certain substances, like, you know, like, you know, like, like cocaine, for instance, or other kinds of drugs, which are illegal now in most cases, as sort of as, you know, alcohol is, for instance, um, treated. Some people would say, well, that actually, you know, involves businesses, corporations that automatically would make a safe supply becomes a regulated industry. Is that something you'd prefer and, and see and, and prefer to see more? I think, I, well, I, yeah, I think it might be better than what we've been doing. But, you know, to understand this issue, we have to go back to 1900 and to recognize that at the time that certain drugs were made illegal, other drugs um, were seen as quite acceptable. Uh, there was a time, of course, in the United States where alcohol was prohibited, but it was relatively brief. And the line that we drew back in the 1900s between legal and illegal drugs had nothing to do with the protection of public health. It was about culture. It was about first world drugs versus right. third world drugs. Um, and, and what we're realizing now is that uh, there's a tremendous price to pay um, in terms of lives lost by failing to regulate drugs that thousands of people have become dependent on and I'm speaking here primarily of opiates but but that you know that can also uh, uh, that same logic can apply to other drugs as well Right. And I'm actually glad you actually dipped into a bit of the history because I did actually want to step into that. So now's a good time as any other. I mean, without spending too much time on it, I have heard you speak about on a podcast, for instance, in Seton, you, you make mention in your writing to, to some of the even Canadian specific history of, you know, uh, basically the legal regime around drugs. And, and, and you were, you know, in some cases, if, if I understand correctly, for instance, it was even just rooted in a form of racism at some point from people from the East, especially when it came to opiates and things like that. Is that the case? Could you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look back to British Columbia at the turn of the century, and I'm speaking here of you know, 1900 and the period between 1900 and 1910, uh, there was the Asiatic Exclusion League, which was formed to prevent immigration from Asia. 
Um, and uh, w- when people from Asia did come, uh, some of them, not, not a majority, but some of them brought with them smoking opium. And they developed smoking opium factories in Vancouver, Victoria, and New Westminster. And for many decades, these smoking opium factories operated without any interference. And in fact, in 1885, there was a commission of inquiry as to whether this was a legitimate form of business. And the conclusion by the chief justice of the day was that um, alcohol uh, seemed to be a, a much greater risk to consumers than opiates. Smoking opium, of course, being very different from injectable heroin or injectable fentanyl. Right. And I, and I suppose like a lot of people were not certainly looking at this as like a sort of a public health issue per se. Then I guess I'm not even sure if that was, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not even sure if even if it was, it, it might've been a small part of the lexicon at the time, but not as big as it is today when there's so much talk about mental health, public health and so on. And in 1900, I can't imagine people were really concerned about no, that I, as a large topic. It was no, I, and if we look at why, why these drugs were criminalized, it had to do with appeasing the people in the Asiatic Exclusion League and others who were concerned about the immigration from Asia and how this was taking away jobs from British Columbians. And uh, when Mackenzie King visited and, and found out, visited Vancouver and found out that there were these smoking opium factories, his initial comment was, well, I'm going to look into this drug business. It's very important that if Chinese druggists are to carry on business as do white druggists, they should be licensed and regulated in a similar manner. Three days later, he told the commission, I think it should be made impossible to manufacture this drug, smoking opium, anywhere in the Dominion. Hmm. We will get some good out of this riot yet. So you have a racist riot on the west coast of Canada, and the Minister of Labor introduces legislation to prohibit smoking opium. You know, this had nothing to do with the protection of public health. It had to do with economics. It had to do with racism. Um, that's how that's how we first uh, embarked upon the criminalization of certain drugs. So a lot of the legacy of of the criminalization of drugs is is as I was saying, like we are stuck with a lot of that today. There's, there's obviously been sort of changes and improvements and, and obviously things have been flow with different governments and so on and so forth. I know now, for instance, marijuana is legal in a certain way, but I guess th- is that really in summary, the legacy that we're dealing with is just reasons other than public health in, in many cases. Well, yes, I think that's in part, but we have to remember that public health has become preeminent over the past 40 to 50 years or more. In 1964, which is 58, 59 years ago, the Surgeon General report in the U.S. identified tobacco as a major health risk for users. Um, at the same time, you know, we've legalized cannabis in Canada as of 2018. And a number of other jurisdictions have done the same thing. In the U.S., many of the states, almost half of the population now live in states where cannabis has been legalized. So we are, because of science, because of our knowledge base increasing, we're starting to recognize that the line that we drew between legal and illegal drugs had nothing to do with the protection of public health. It had to do with culture, economics. In the case of the original legislation with uh, with racist tendencies, well, more than tendencies, with racist sentiments. Um, and there's... I think a growing recognition um, that public health is is an important variable, uh, but that if we're going to be consistent, um, alcohol and tobacco 
are, you know, very much dangerous drugs in, you know, in, in, con- in contrast in some ways to perhaps cannabis and caffeine, which are less dangerous than both alcohol and tobacco. So again, it's a very jumbled line that we've drawn between the legal and the illegal. Right. And on the whole, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does sound like in summary, like you're on the side, this would obviously be considered more of a, of a public health issue, if anything, rather than anything to do with criminal health uh, regulation in, in many cases, right? Yeah, I mean, my, I think we should be trying to regulate it. And the big success in the war against drugs is what we've done with tobacco. We've, we've made tobacco somewhat more expensive. We made it more difficult to use in public settings because of non-smokers rights initiatives. And, you know, in some parts of the country, we're down to um, less than 5% of, of the population using tobacco. You go back to the mid-1960s, 60% of Canadian adults use tobacco. So, you know, if, if the goal is to protect public health, and we haven't criminalized it. We haven't criminally prohibited it. We've effectively regulated. And so, you know, we need to look at that kind of effective regulation with other drugs that pose hazards to health. Um, you know, with, with uh, opiates, for example, uh, right now we've got this toxic supply. So maybe the best strategy is to regulate access um, and at the same time, you know, work to discourage use. Um, we, we've been quite successful with tobacco, and I don't know why we should assume that because a non-criminal approach worked extremely well with that drug, a, a, an approach of criminal prohibition will work well with other drugs. That has, has not happened. Um, you know, uh, we can look at the history of cannabis. The use increased um, from the 1960s to the present. Right. And I'm actually glad you mentioned specifically the toxic supply and so on, because with that back- backdrop and things we've been discussing so far, I do want to segue into a bit more of the case study specifically when it comes to what's going on out in British Columbia, the province in Canada. Um, y- you know, as a case study in and of itself, there's been some fortunate and unfortunate things that have been happening out in BC as far as the public health situation out there. Um, before we talk about recent legal changes, which I also want to get into because there was some activity th- this year in January uh, for legal changes in BC, I did want to start with the backdrop and context of the public health out there. I mean, lots of people know BC has a certain public health problems related to drugs and in some areas that of it, you know, that are in crisis. But but beyond that general, there are as a crisis out there. Can you describe really what's been going on over the past few years as far as the public health situation in BC, especially for those who aren't familiar? And then we can get into some other questions after that. Well, I would say that, you know, it's not just British Columbia. I mean, across the country, there are these um, opiate overdoses as a consequence of a toxic supply. We see it in Alberta, we see it in Ontario. It's because in British Columbia because uh, there's a long-standing history of use of opiates here and um, a population of users um, who, you know, are often referred to as being on the downtown east side, but in reality that population uh, spreads well beyond the downtown east side. Um, And uh, you can go back to the 50s to find the first use of, of, uh, 50s and 60s to find the first use of of heroin uh, in, in Vancouver. And, and now we have a situation in which um, older uh, opiate users prefer, uh, if we're talking about a, a market where they are regulated market, 
they would prefer heroin, whereas some of the younger opiate users would prefer fentanyl. So it's a complicated solution in terms of the provision of a safer supply. Um, not all opiate users use or want to use the same uh, drug or the same formulation of the drug. And, and because of the toxic supply, I believe I was looking at a chart just the other day, but I want to make sure it's right. I, I think like there's been a, st- I think a steady increase or maybe a slight flatline recently in the last two years. But but since 2015, 16, I believe that deaths because of overdosing and, and the toxic supply have been on the increase, right? That's correct. I mean, the, the toxic supply has led to the changes. We can go back to the 1990s and find overdose deaths that were largely heroin alcohol overdose deaths. And I suspect that alcohol still has a role to play today, but not as dominant as it was during the 1990s. It's, it's fentanyl and carfentanyl. It's the extremely toxic nature of the synthetic opiates that is causing the problem today. Right. And before we get again into the, the recent legal changes in the decriminalization regime and some of your thoughts on that, um, could you describe some of the, you know, the general public health remedies and solutions that have been presented and tried before uh, in, in British Columbia? Like, I, I think, you know, there's, if everyone understand correctly, there's been discussions with safe injection sites, there's been safe supply discussions, even before decriminalization. Can you get a bit into the kinds of things that have been tried and whether or not you think they sure, actually I mean, have we, been effective? We did have uh, a three-year experiment with a provision of heroin for people who were dependent on heroin. Um, and they would go three times a day to this clinic in downtown, uh, the downtown Vancouver, uh, uh, Abbott and Hastings, where they would uh, they would get their supply. But the reality of that, given given the constraints that were placed on access by the federal government of the day, um, only a very small percentage. I think it was about a hundred users took part in that experiment. What they found was that because not that many users had schedules that would uh, suggest that they would be able to go three times a day, that they would be compliant. So this was a fairly compliant group of opiate users. And yes, um, what was discovered from that experience was that crime decreased, um, their psychological and emotional health uh, improved because they weren't just chasing the drugs uh, in an illicit marketplace. Uh, so, but again, that applied to a fairly small number of people. We've also had the supervised uh, consumption site uh, uh, since uh, early in this century, and uh, uh, we um, we found uh, one of the things we've learned about that is that um, overdose deaths can be prevented. Pre- prevented, rather, people can be brought back uh, if they overdose in that setting. Now, again, the problem with that is that most injections don't take place in Insight, the, uh, the, the site on, uh, on Hastings in downtown Vancouver. But most injections take place in private residences where um, people will die if they take a toxic amount. Right. And and that's sort of like the uh, injection and consumption sites uh, recently, especially actually now that I think of it politically, federally in Canada, people are talking about safe supply again, whether or not that, that's been a good thing or not. Has has To clarify, has, has BC also uh, experimented um, w- with sort of safe supplies of drugs as well? Yeah. They, I mean, the problem is they are, they are experimenting certainly with safe supply in terms of prescription. And, and they've talked about a vending machine. You've used this vending machine where people with a bioprint or biomarker can 
can access their uh, their opiates. But again, the, the problem is that you've got so many avenues uh, for the provision of a safer supply, and we haven't been able to meet those many avenues um, in order to uh, stem the tide of overdose deaths. So, you know, many people, um, many people who who, who aren't um, in a position to be able to uh, work this out with a physician and, and on a prescription basis. Um, and so we still have people um, accessing the illicit market. Another idea that's come up is um, buy off the dark web, uh, check the drugs. This is an organization in Vancouver. Check the drugs to determine their potency and then sell them to dependent users or give them to dependent users, mostly some form of, of sale. Not The idea here is not to make a profit, but to <clears throat> provide users with a product that they know the potency of. Um, and, and that's you know yet another way of trying to reach this population. So that's where we're at at the moment in terms of safer supply, I think, trying to figure out mechanisms that will actually reach those at risk. Um, and it's difficult to imagine that you'll capture everybody, but um, there certainly are improvements that are being made, and and it seems more likely, um, given the approach today, that uh, there might be some success than, for example, there was five or ten years ago. Mm-hmm. On, on the safe supply discussion specifically, there are those, um, especially in Canada, especially since this is becoming a bit of a, more of a political issue in a federal level, specifically those on the conservative side right now or people that lean more that way, who kind of thread the needle a bit on their on their talking point and the way they view this from a public policy perspective. They'll sort of sidestep, at least in my opinion, I find any discussion of safe supply and say, well, you know, that's not the issue. We don't want to be getting drugs into people's hands. We want to be investing in things like rehabilitation programs and so on and so forth. But there's others that counter that and say, well, you kind of need both if you really want to deal with the issue. Where do you come down on this mix? I mean, is it really about... Well, I think you do You do need both. I mean, if, if people... You know, I've talked to people who are dependent on opiates and, and listen to what they have to say. And, and many of them don't want to stop. They want to keep using. They don't want to die, but they want to keep using. Right. And until a person makes a decision that they want to stop using, and uh, until they're willing and able to take steps in that direction, um, they're not they're not easily reachable. So I, my take is, yeah, we need both uh, options available. You know, we we need both um, access to various kinds of recovery. Uh, and we need, um, at least in the short term, it seems little doubt, if we want to stem the loss of life, uh, we need a greater access for those, uh, the, the, well, this issue of safer supply for those who are dependent. Right. And we're about at the time right now where it's time to take a break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Neil Boyd today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Chris Rondolo, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Tasks and speaking with Neil Boyd today. Neil, I thought the first half was great. We reviewed a bunch of things. I got into a discussion that specifically started tailing off there on uh, the safe supply versus rehabilitation uh, discussion. And, and we did provide a backdrop for things that are happening in Canada and BC as well. I want to move forward now. I did uh, mention a few times in the first half that there has actually been some recent legal changes as of January 2023 in British Columbia. C- could, you des- could you describe those to us and really where, where's the province embarking now and what, what is it trying to do? Well, the, pro- the province is trying to ensure that people who are using um, are not at risk of being arrested and, and, and confined if they're in a relatively small, in possession of a relatively small amount, 2.5 gram, grams of, uh, of opiates. And um, the big issue around this initiative is, is whether that will be sufficient uh, to to change the toll that we see with respect to loss of life from overdose deaths, and um, I, I'm not sure that that it will be the case because we don't really have a mechanism for providing people with a safer supply. And if you've got a population who are dependent, who who will continue to use, who will, you know, despite most of us look at this and we think, I can't imagine taking those kinds of risks, just can't imagine it at all. That's what 99, 95% of us think. But there, you know, there's a size, there is a sizable number of people who are willing to take those risks. And so, the, you know, the government is trying to save lives by introducing this initiative, but I'm not sure that it will be sufficient to, to stop that loss of life. Right. So, so the decriminalization regime, as you said, you know, if you're carrying under a certain amount of certain drugs, specifically opiates are included in there. I mean, your life's not going to get ruined. You're not going to be thrown in jail. And personally, I do think that that is a very good thing. But you said you, you don't think it goes far enough. What are the kinds of things you would like to see beyond just this? Well, I, I you know, I think we've made a big mistake with drugs. We need a regulated environment. And it isn't about encouraging use of drugs at all. In fact, it's mostly the opposite. You know, you can use tobacco, but tobacco is not in any sense uh, encouraged or uh, seen. Tobacco use is not seen as, as something the government wants to to um, extol the virtues of. Um, and, and so, you know, a, a drug like opiates, um, you know, we have alcohol, alcohol overdose deaths every year. Uh, all of these mind-active drugs have significant risks attached. Some some fewer risks than others. Cannabis, caffeine, don't have the kinds of risks that uh, we see with with uh, al- with with uh, tobacco, with opiates, and and to a somewhat more limited extent with alcohol. Um, but th- that's uh, that's I think where we need to head is is how can how can we think creatively? How can we create legislation that will allow us to regulate these drugs? Um, without encouraging their use, and and I think tobacco is just such a perfect example. You know, we we have a tiny percentage of Canadians using this drug today. The evidence is pretty overwhelming in terms of harms, and we've finally caught on to the imposition that smokers are making on non-smokers. It used to be the case that you would fly on planes; they'd have a smoking section. I remember those days. I'm glad they're gone. So. My pitch is not one of the 
drugs are fun, drugs are great. I know that can be true for some people. And, and we all probably have had experience with alcohol and maybe with cannabis and with some other drugs where, where there's some enjoyment. But regulation, because these are, these are all substances that pose public health risks, regulation is the, uh, that, that diminishes use is the strategy that we should be preferring. So, yeah, so there are some that when they hear decriminalization, they think of sort of this narrow, specific legal term of, you know, uh, you know, changing the, the law. So X, Y, and Z happens and you don't go to jail. But it sounds like to you, the discussion around decriminalization should really signal, signal both the literal legal part of it, which is not throwing people in jail for X, Y, and Z, but also what else is happening around the regulation side, if I'm understanding you correctly. I, I think that's right. And, and so... But, but I, I'm not sure that there's a place for the criminal law when it comes to the drugs that people put um, in their system. Um, you know, there are parts of this. Uh, if, if you're selling um, alcohol that will make people blind, yeah, you should be prosecuted and possibly go to jail. If you're selling a drug that you say is cannabis and, in fact, it's spiked with fentanyl, of course, that's actionable and, right. and criminal. But should the Possession and distribution of mind-active drugs be something that is criminalized. I think it should be something that's regulated, not criminalized. Right. So, so like, you know, in, in, in the future, in, in Neil's sort of ideal world, you'd actually, for instance, for example, if the state is to be involved, you would actually see like a, a minister in government actually more openly talking about this stuff at the federal level for more, for more of a regulation perspective rather than a, a criminal law perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. We do it with alcohol and tobacco, right. particularly with, with tobacco, and, and, and we're doing it with cannabis. I mean, there's talk about how, you know, you, if you mix cannabis and alcohol, you certainly shouldn't be driving. There's a synergistic effect. We're, we're taking issue with impaired driving with cannabis alcohol. Um, so, uh, and, and we're looking um, at young people and, uh, and trying to ensure that uh, people are, uh, that their brains have matured to the point where they're, where they're um, uh, not taking undue risks with respect to consumption. So, you know, the backdrop to, to tobacco, alcohol, and cannabis is a regulatory backdrop. And I think it's one that serves us well. And again, I go to tobacco to, to point to an example of that backdrop serving us very well. Do you think that each sort of drug, depending on how it acts, depending on what it actually does and so on and so forth, sort of deserves its own specific look um, as to, yes. let's say, if it's yes. legal, of yeah. course, we will, you know, you're, you're saying we're going to regulate it. But for, for example, like one might want to regulate cocaine differently than heroin, just as an example. Do you think exactly. that's a valid statement? I think that's a very valid statement. I, you know, I think it depends on the risks. We regulate. You can get on a plane and you can drink alcohol. You can't get on a plane and smoke tobacco or smoke cannabis. And there's a logic behind that. So you have to look at the drug and how, how it's best regulated in terms of protection of public health, uh, in terms of avoiding harm to individuals. And, you know, different drugs carry different risks. So it's entirely appropriate to gear a regulatory strategy to a drug. And I know you pointed out very correctly, and I like when that happens, that you said, well, hey, like, you know, we don't need to go far around the world to look at places where this works. You can point to, for instance, how Canada and the provinces deal with alcohol, tobacco, and so on. But are there other sort of areas in the world or countries that you would point to as case studies or things you've read on in your research that you think you can point to and say, hey, look at what X, Y, and Z country did with ABC drug. It really worked there. We should maybe import some of these types of plans. 
Well, it's difficult to know. I mean, with cannabis, you've got so many different options from, um, you know, the the kind of approach that uh, that you see in the United States uh, to the Canadian approach to um, some of the me- medical cannabis rules in different jurisdictions across the country. I'm sorry, across the globe, um, and. Uh, you know, again, it's 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 removing the criminal sanction that's critical, right? And and, and final question before we move on to the uh, final wrap up: um, If the regimes and for certain types of drugs that you've been talking about, not only decriminalization but basically just turning into a public health and regulation issue in your mind, actually did come to fruition, what are the kind of statistical results and things and trends that you you would expect to see? Like less deaths, more more companies getting involved. Just kind of paint that picture. Like, what would you expect to see if the regime, the kind of regimes you're talking about, would actually be instituted? Well, I would certainly hope to see less loss of life. Um, you know, we've seen a reduction in lung cancer deaths, for example, which is directly tied to a reduction in tobacco smoking. Um, one of the crazy situations we have today is one in which um, to, uh, the use of uh, vaping nicotine is seen as um, tantamount to smoking tobacco. And in fact, the risk to health from you know, a smoker who goes off tobacco and vapes nicotine, um, thereby you know, solving the problem of dependence for him or herself, that person is not, um, contrary to what some of the people in the tobacco industry say, um, the e-cigarette is not nearly the risk to health that the tobacco cigarette is. So, you know, there's a lot of learning that still needs to take place. And what about those that, that, that would say that, um, because you've talked about regulation quite a few times here, so I'm just going to spin it to the other side here, just because I know some of our listeners might be a proponent of a complete sort of open market style when it comes to substances, where really things to do with substances, for example, would be regulated by other parts of the law. For example, if you were to get in a car and hit someone because you were impaired because of cocaine or another type of drug, let's say, they would say, well, that should fall under, obviously, you can't go around hurting people with a car, for example, but there shouldn't really be much of a, a even a the state imposing on any sort of open market operation for drugs, specifically when it has to do with how it affects the individual themselves. In your mind, is that kind of like a, a too far on the other side of the situation here? Because you, you mentioned regulation a few times. So I wanted to get your thought from that other side of, of that complete sort of free slash open market approach as well, where the state just steps out completely. Well, the state regulates um, all kinds of businesses appropriately enough. And if we look at the state's regulation of tobacco, I think that's uh, something we should praise. We, we, should, be, we should be thankful for that. Um, and, and again, to go back to a, a question you asked just a few minutes ago, you know, it depends on the drug. Um, I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, alcohol uh, has not been very thoroughly regulated. Um, you know, at the same time, it's the most popular drug in the country. 80% of adult Canadians use alcohol to some extent. Um, but, you know, we've recently heard that instead of it being 14 drinks a week, that uh, uh, is an acceptable limit, it's now down to three. Um, right. You know, whether whether that research is, is research that um, is is sufficient or it's, it carries the day is another question. Right. Well, excellent, Neil. I do thank you for chatting with me today. I'm going to move us ahead to our, our formal wrap-up. It was great to get your perspective perspective on everything so far. In each of our episodes, I want to make sure that when we bring the conversation full circle, uh, we put a finer point on our exploration of the question with giving the guest ultimately the last word. So let me ask you what is sort of the last official question. What, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here 
on uh, how they should think on drug decriminalization and whether it works. In other words, if you wanted someone listening to you here today to take away one or two or just a few things, if anything, what do you want them to take away? Well, the, maybe the criminal law isn't for mind active drugs. You know, maybe we need a regulatory framework for, uh, just as we have with alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis. We need to expand that framework to other drugs. The, the, the negative consequences of what we're doing now are, are greater um, than the benefits. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. Neil Boyd, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. You bet. Okay, thanks. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.